And like a flood, his mercy reigns, unending love, amazing grace. Part of that grace is the grace we lend to one another. And in this place, we have the privilege of experiencing that grace as we share in community with one another. One of the great joys of my life have been able to be part of this graceful community. And to preach before you today, a privilege I cherish. Let's pray. Lord, open our ears that we may hear what you would have us hear. Open our minds that we might understand what you would have us to understand. so that we may become who you're calling us to be and do what you would have us to do. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all the people said, amen. In recent years, I've grown to love the poetry of Jane Kenyon. Hers is a remarkable story of doubt and depression, of courage and faith, all of which ring from the words she pins on the page. In 1993, she published a collection called Constance. Among the poems included in that collection was one called Otherwise. Unfortunately, I seem to have arrived at the pulpit without the poem, but it should be in my folder right there. <laughs> Thank you. You could only do this at a place like Truett. <laughs> well, it's not there. <laughs> so bear with me a moment. Let's see if it's here. This is a moment when you need amazing grace. 
And I certainly need it right now because I can't find the poem anywhere. And I could not possibly quote it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Here we go. The marvels of technology and the importance of community. Otherwise, by Jane Kenyon. I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day, I know. It will be otherwise. Your otherwise may be a good thing. It calls for celebration. An A on Dr. Nan's oral final. Dr. Gregory's voice on your answering machine. An autographed copy of all Dr. Garland's commentaries and a truck to haul them home with. A collection of Dr. Reed's ties. Or the call you've been waiting for, hoping for, longing for. The first touch of that very special hand. Your otherwise may be a good thing, but Kenyon's poem has a more foreboding tone, the sound of change and not for the better, and it was prophetic. For two years later, on April 22, 1995, Jane Kenyon died of leukemia. But one day, I know it will be otherwise. Otherwise is a way of interrupting our lives, and most of the time when we least expect it, it comes in all sizes, all shapes, a rejection, a broken promise, a broken dream, a broken heart, a broken body. One day I know it will be otherwise. And the words of the Scottish poet Robert Burns ring ever so true. The best laid plans of mice and men gang after glay and lean naught but in pain for promised joy. So how do you go on when otherwise comes? Well, Saul of Tarsus had much experience with otherwise. His zeal for the law had catapulted him to the top of his seminary class. His Pharisaic commitments were second to none in his generation. 
He felt assured of his appointment to the prestigious Hillel Chair of Rabbinic Theology at Jerusalem's Torah Tech. But somehow, it turned out otherwise. Bound for Damascus to round up followers of the crucified fraud called Jesus, he met Jesus. His diplomas disappeared beneath the Syrian sand. His credentials were relegated to refuse. His dreams of prestige and honor due to an esteemed learned rabbi dashed. And worst of all, Jesus, who couldn't possibly be the Messiah, must be the Messiah. Because God would never raise a fraud from the dead. And what's more, this Jesus says he wants me on my team, his team. He intends for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. How's that for otherwise? We know what happened next. Foolish as it all must have seemed, Paul spent the rest of his life crisscrossing the Roman Empire doing just this, planting churches the way Johnny Appleseed planted seeds. Ten years in Cilicia, Syrian Antioch, the island of Cyprus, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Ephesus. Do you notice I skipped one? Corinth. He spent longer there than anywhere else except Ephesus. Not one month or two months, not six months or 12 months, but 18 months planning the church in Corinth. And don't you know when he left after that 18 months, he must have left with a skip in his step and a smile on his face. Surely he'd secured the church in Corinth. Boy, was he in for an otherwise. Good went to bad in that church. He wrote them one letter. They sent back another letter and a report from Chloe's people. And 1 Corinthians, our 1 Corinthians, is a litany of the issues that were plaguing the church. Then there was another visit. He calls it painful. They basically threw him out on his ears. Things went from bad to worse. He wrote another letter, the tearful letter. And that brings us to 2 Corinthians. Our topic for this semester's sermons. 2 Corinthians always stands in the shadow of 1 Corinthians. It's inevitable. It's the second. And yet, in some ways, it's the most personal of all of Paul's letters. We get in, in this letter an unusually vivid portrait. Candidly, he shares his joys and his sorrows, his hopes and his fears, his strengths and his weaknesses. In some ways, it is his most passionate letter. He is engaged in a serious conflict, a life and death conflict for the church in Corinth. There's a challenge to his authority, a challenge to his ministry, a challenge to the very gospel he proclaims. It all stems from two ways of thinking, which are always present in the world. 
One he calls life kata sarka. Life according to the flesh. Three basic principles. One, orientation to self. Two, the mind of the world and its wisdom. Three, the aim of all this is self-service. And then there's the other way of thinking. He called it life kathanuma, life according to the spirit. Three basic principles, orientation not to self but to God, the mind of Christ, the aim, not self-service but self-sacrifice. Engaged in this conflict, Paul presents in 2 Corinthians his manifesto for ministry. His heart stands open and broken, and he is more vulnerable than anywhere else. His ministry there and everywhere is a stunning achievement, especially when you consider what he went through. He tells us in 2 Corinthians, open your Bibles to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And look with me, beginning at verse 24. Five times I have received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a night and day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and, and sisters in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked, and besides everything else, I'm under the daily pressure because of my anxiety for all of the churches. All this by the time he writes 2 Corinthians. All that by the time he writes 2 Corinthians. Do you think this is what he expected when he signed up with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? I suspect it was quite otherwise. And all this would play right into the hands of his enemies in Corinth. They would say, surely God takes better care of his people than this. Surely Paul must have wondered himself at times. After all, he was an ambassador of the risen Jesus, was he not? And then there was all that jail time. Towards the end, there was Jerusalem for a fortnight, then possibly two to four years in Caesarea Maritima, and at last at least two years under house arrest in Rome. What could possibly have been more discouraging, more frustrating to a man who spent his life on the road than confinement for all this time? All he wanted was to hit the road again, the road where it all begun for him. And if God had what it took to raise Jesus from the dead, surely he could bust Paul out of prison. And if all this is not enough, there was that infernal thorn in the flesh. Turn over to chapter 12. Remember what he says about it. Down in verse 7. 
the middle of the verse, therefore to keep me from being too elated, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I appealed to the Lord about this, that it would leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is made perfect in weakness. So what is this thorn in the flesh? 2,000 years of speculation has failed to identify it. Tertullian thought it was a headache or an earache. Chrysostom was sure it was his enemies. Augustine thought it was just a general description of his physical sufferings. One thing to me seems certain. For the most part, I believe we have sorely underestimated its nature. Translating it as thorn is certainly one option, but that doesn't really give us much of a picture not a thorn on a rose bush. It could also be translated stake. A sharp pointed stake that was used for torture. It could even be translated cross. You see, I believe Paul had a stake in his body. Not a thorn. And it had become an object of ridicule and derision by his enemies. So three times I appealed to the Lord that it would leave me. Lord, let this thorn pass from me. Not once, not twice, but three times. But somehow it turned out otherwise. And one cannot but wonder if Paul's threefold prayer echoes another threefold prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remove this cup from me. But there was no otherwise. The cup must be drunk. The suffering endured. Apparently for Paul, there was also no otherwise. But there was a word for Paul's continuing Gethsemane. My grace is sufficient. There it is. Through it all. Paul had learned that God's grace is sufficient. Look over in chapter 4 again. The passage you heard read. Listen to what he says here. We have this treasure in clay jars, clay pots, so that it may make clear to that the extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. Isn't that our problem? We are afflicted in every way, but not Christ. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our bodies. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. There it is. There it is. In our lives, we are always being given up to death so that the life of Jesus may be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Paul got it. He understood. We can't always explain the otherwise. There may seem no reason for it, no rhyme. 
But Paul understood that whatever it might be, God's grace was sufficient. For power is made perfect in weakness. God's power and our weakness. Then people don't point to us, but to the God whose power is at work in us. We're just clay pots, clay jars. And they give what you had put in that clay pot or clay jar, you had to break it. So we're broken pots because of the otherwise is of our lives. Paul understood. Paul got it. It sounds counterintuitive, upside down, out of kilter, out of whack. It smacks of denying self and taking up the cross and of all things following Jesus. But there it is. There it is. For while we live, we are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in our mortal flesh. It's not us people need to see, is it? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And whatever may come, reasonable or unreasonable, explainable or inexplicable, whatever it may become, His grace is sufficient. Let's bring it home for a moment. My otherwise came on November 21st, 2005. I woke up on Sunday morning. I went to the shower. I noticed my arm was a little lazy. I thought, I must have slept wrong. I dressed, went to church, sang in the choir, had a little trouble turning the pages of the song, but had been taught in high school, if you can't find the word, just sing watermelon, 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 <laughs> over and over again. So I did. After church, went downstairs to the fellowship hall and sat at the table with Dr. Diana Garland, who had just come back from Oklahoma to, from visit to her mother. And we talked about the fact that while she had been there, her blood pressure had spiked so much that they feared she was having a stroke. <laughs> when lunch was over, I couldn't get up. I couldn't walk. People helped me to the car. We went to the hospital, and for the next two days, gradually, the stroke took over the right side of my body. But this I know. God's grace is sufficient. And by his grace, I came to walk again. And by his grace, I came to talk again. 
And by his grace, I came to teach again and preach again. All because of that otherwise, I became another person than I had been. I can't explain it. I don't know why. But I do know this. You can trust Paul because you can trust God. And God's grace is always sufficient. So when the otherwise comes, and it will come, Remember this. His unending love and his amazing grace will always be sufficient. So when you cannot see his hand trust his heart.